Hello and welcome to episode 45 of The Figure, a podcast about lifelong learning. In each episode, we figure out a person, number, an image. <laughs> Presented by not, George Parkin. It's numbers and images. Well, it's fine, we can just leave it. It is true, it's a person, a number and an image. It's actually more accurate. <sighs> Presented by Georgia Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. Hi, Charlotte Lorimer. <laughs> How are you? Very well concluded. Um, I am better than last week. Um, Good. This time last Good. week, I think I was walking in the rain and just feeling very heavy. And mm. yeah, we have... I thought about changing the topics as well that we were going to talk about this week, but we have decided to stick with it and all will be unfolding throughout the episode. But a lot has happened since we last recorded. Yes, you've been on an adventure. I have a solo quest. (laughs) Um, I went to Skopelos, which was the island where Mamma Mia was filmed, and I did all things Mamma Mia, including listening to uh, the winner takes it all as I walked down the steps of the church which was one of the highlights of my year Um, and I also went to the Mamma Mia beach where they do that lay all your love on me scene and I found my own little mini beach around the corner which was really nice Um, I did a lot of swimming I did a lot of reading I did a lot of podcast listening especially to mm. Oprah Super Soul conversations. Really, really good. good. And the one that you recommended to me was phenomenal. Did you like I you? absolutely loved I'm it. Glad. It's called um, When mm. You Know Better, You Do Better. And it's a great compilation of interviews that Oprah has done over the years, including with uh, a woman who used to be a prostitute and how she's moved her life on and turned it around. Um, and with members of the... A kind of Ku Klux Klan, like white supremacist group, mm-hmm. and her regret of letting them on the show in the first place because she thought that they were going to be ridiculed and it ended up basically being a recruitment exercise for them and totally mm. platformed their beliefs when they had supposedly reformed their beliefs and they asked to come back on the show she was very hesitant and she said to the producers if I don't like this conversation it's not being aired and yeah the transformation was radical um I'd really recommend that episode um also any podcast with Elizabeth Gilbert this is my favorite thing to do so you just I like I really like doing this for lots of different people actually but if you type in a name of somebody that you'd really admire into the podcast search and then you can just go through and you can find different podcasts that they've done and it's quite a good way of discovering new ones through doing that um but I loved her episode on control alt delete and on happy place and every one on super soul conversations <laughs> um I could go on and on and the other podcast that I listen to which is a new one since we've last recorded is called So I Got to Thinking and it's with Juno Dawson and Dylan B. Jones and every week they watch an episode of Sex and the City and then they analyse it through a 2019 lens and I am watching along with them. I actually started re-watching it just before it launched. And now I am well ahead of them because it is a very <laughs> easy show to get pulled into. It's just, I've forgotten how good it is. I said this before, but it is just 
so insightful. There's obviously lots of things which you would do differently now, but considering it came out in the 90s, I feel like there's lots of hot topics that are still very relevant um, and lots of, like, mm. gender dynamics and, and yeah, like, age differences and all sorts of things. I like it a lot. A podcast episode that I also really recommend... Um, is the season premiere of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. She interviews Camilla Thurlow um, from Love Island. Such a fantastic conversation. I think every single person who listens to it will probably relate on some level. I've um, never related to a brilliant. podcast episode of How to Fail <clears throat> as much. I th- Actually, maybe that's not true. There's mm. a couple more. that I to The other ones I've really related yeah. to, Elizabeth Day's one herself and um, Charlie Cox. Um, I also have got into a bit of a under the skin hole, um, which is Russell Brand's podcast. The episode that he did with Jordan Peterson uh, called Freedom and Tyranny is very good. Um, It covers pretty much every topic you could think of. It's about an hour and a half. Such an interesting conversation. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm really (laughs) pissed off by hour and a half long podcasts. No, you just got to just listen to them in chunks, like an audio book. You've got to think of it like an audio yeah. book. Um, because actually you miss the, you miss the, the gold. Because they, that comes at sort of like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. And you think, wow, if I just listened to the first 10 minutes, I would just not have got as much of this as I did, you know, if I listened on. Um, also loving the Super Soul Conversations um, that was absolutely brilliant. And I also love The Doctor's Pharmacy. Just a fantastic podcast. They literally talk about absolutely everything. Um, he's incredible. What kind of topics um, do they cover? Oh, my God. Okay, so here are some of the titles. So, Can Food Reactivate Your Stem Cells? Death is Inevitable, But Aging Is Not. Um, why You Should Feel Optimistic About The Future. Have the we discovered the cause of Alzheimer's, um, the importance of the gut um, and mental health. That um, sounds brilliant. So, yeah, there's so many brilliant topics. It's really, really cool. Really That's fantastic. So, um, speaking of audiobooks yeah. as well, I have been listening to Circe by Madeline Miller. Um, have you heard about this book? So I've just started it and I'm on a bit of a... Um, there's a sort of wave of feminist greek myth books coming out or have come out in the last year and a half i'd say um so i read the silence of the girls in 24 hours it's by pat barker it was recommended to me by my godmother jillian and i have i can't remember the last time i had a book where i just completely devoured it but also found it quite difficult to read but just couldn't pull myself away from it um so it's essentially a retelling of the (coughs) trojan war um just leading up to the kind of climax and it's from the perspective of the slave girl brises who is given to i say given that's definitely not the right word um she's the trophy for achilles and it covers the relationship between her and Achilles, Achilles and Patroclus. And it's a story that I obviously have known for a while because I studied it at university. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really connect to it in the way that I had with Pat Barker's book because she just 
makes everything so raw and real and she doesn't shy away from the fact at all that essentially what they were living in was a rape camp and it's something where in every retelling that I've heard by a man including Stephen Fry's version mythos they really do not acknowledge that that was the reality of what was going on and also seems like when the father um, Priam whose son Hector has been killed by Achilles he comes and he asks for Hector's body and he comes into the camp by himself pulled by donkeys on a kind of farmer's cart and he kisses the feet of Achilles and you just it is such an incredible powerful moment of paternal like loyalty and love and affection and complete desperation to have this body back and that was the kind of thing that when it's written in a novel form and with such beautiful rich language it's just that story comes to life in a completely new way so I would highly recommend that um I've also been on a fairy tale uh, theme. Um, so I finally read The Surface Breaks, which is a retelling of The Little Mermaid um, for kind of, I guess it's aimed at teenage girls and it's written in that way. So it took me a little while to get into it. But then again, I just, I liked the way that she wrote the thoughts that Ariel was having and how they were changing as she realised how much she'd given up to be on land um and that giving up her voice was the most terrible mistake that almost kind of led to her complete downfall um and it's the original Hans Christian Andersen version which is brutal um but anyone who's interested in fairy tales definitely have a look at that one and finally Fierce Fairy Tales by Nikita Gill who is actually she's draws the two of them together she has recently released a book of poetry called the great goddesses and she originally started posting her poetry on instagram and she illustrates all of her own books and i just i can't even put into words how much these books mean to me they feel like they've changed the narratives that i've had growing up in my head which are sort of disney 50s versions of these stories and male lenses of ancient greek myths and just put kind of fire and spice into them in a very new way um that i devoured um one of them is inside out a memoir by demi moore very good and the second is the testaments um by margaret atwood which is the um sequel to the i can't believe you read it what okay three adjectives to describe it um you can't you can't stop Okay, that's three words. Good. <laughs> yeah. The first figure for this week's episode is Greta Thunberg, who is the lady of the moment. She has recently given a very famous speech at the UN last week, which President Trump viciously mocked, and uh, the impeachment inquiry has started. So we can all watch that. <laughs> Greta is the climate change activist that Donald Trump has recently criticised heavily. And the people who work with him. So there was a guy called Steve Milloy. I feel like we shouldn't be opening with all these criticism, but we're going to go on for all the positive things. Um, described her as an adult, exploited, empty-headed child. Mad. But, you know, well, I think, I think there's a lot to unpick of the criticism that she... Yeah, there is. And I think um, picking on the, up on that word child, mm. should we start with that? Because I think that... One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is what is it about Greta that people have had such a strong emotional reaction to? Um, 
I feel like you can't really be ambivalent mm. <laughs> about what she's doing. And I think that a part of that is that she is 16 years old um, and a climate activist and has been for the last year and a bit. So she refused to go to school and sat outside the government in Sweden, um, in Stockholm. And that was sort of the climate strike. And then like her school day. Yeah, so it was a normal school working day. And then she did that, and then gradually people started to join her. And then who would have known, you fast forward 12 months, and you've got an estimated 4 million people striking all over the world in more than 100 countries. And this wave that she has driven is just extraordinary. And I think the huge part of it is that she is 16, but she looks so much younger than 16. And I think that the combination of like the innocence and the vulnerability that well, yeah, she, she taps represents, into the vulnerability in everybody, and, doesn't she? Because we all we yeah, all actually have does. that inner child. And that's then going, no, these issues are important. Ooh, yeah, it's the inner child. That's mm. exactly what I think it is. And if she was, and I don't want to talk about her looks because that's not the most important thing. But I think it's part of her power. Um, because we live in this media world and I think that she is not sexualized in the same way that other 16-year-old girls might be. So, for example, think of, like, Emma Watson. She would have been... I'm just, I don't know why that's the name that's first gone to come to my head, but I remember the photographs of her when she was 16, 18, and they were so different. The media reaction was completely different. And obviously the context yeah. is totally different. Oh, yeah, she definitely looks see what I mean? a lot younger than she is, and that's definitely part of her power, I suppose. Um, mm. it's just I think it's just inc- I think no one can den- well a lot of pe- people do but I think no one can deny her grit and determination and I think that actually really moves people and even people who do just not just don't think about climate change because you know they've been told about climate change for 50 years and nothing seems to change to them um, she somehow she somehow it's gets so incremental and gets, mm. them, you know, gets attention. Mm. Yeah, that's my other theory, that because climate change and global warming has been this undercurrent, which is always there, it should, in her view, I mean, that's what she was so confused about when she found out about it eight years old. Why is it not in the headlines every single day? This is a crisis. But because it's always there, it means that there's no what they call news hook for journalists. So you need to have something where it's like an of the moment topical thing and she has become the news hook mm. that just has like then generated me, just like with me too. more I and more and more and more. It's been going on for millennia. Exactly. And now we it's have like an story. undercurrent and then you get the thing and then it breaks mm-hmm. and then it um, snowballs. No, it's true and I think a lot of older people or people who are maybe more leaning on the right will just argue, you know, we've been taught about climate change um, from school, from the 50s and 60s, 70s, nothing's really changed that much from what I can see from, you know, a visible point of view. Um, and I'm not going to change my habits because what's that going to make a difference? That's not going to make any difference. Whereas someone of Greta's age, um, and especially all the students that strike at school, you know, from year, gosh, three up until year 11 or sixth form, they're all growing up with this mm. as a crisis, like an absolute crisis. And I think their outlook is going to be a lot different yeah. to even us. Yeah. I remember this really 
um, got a very vivid memory of when I was probably about nine and my parents were talking about how eventually the sun will die and I remember this like existential moment where I just thought oh my god what like I just it hadn't even entered my head that at some point the world that we live in would not be the same and I just yeah had this like fear and I think that my reaction for lots of climate change issues and my own habits has been to shut it down and kind of do what I can but there's no like I would not have had the grit that Greta has at 16 to say I'm not going to fly ever and I'm not going to do this and I'm going to buy this and I'm going to like all of that just feels like on a different level even though she's only Mm. eight years younger than us what are some of the statistics that Greta talks about that um have really shaken you can you remember any of them from that's the one I remember I think yeah I'm going to be, what, 35? Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so... Yeah, 12 years to turn 30, it around. 35, that's so young. <laughs> um, mm. What will happen in 12 yeah. years if we don't turn it around? <laughs> that's what really, really, really scares me. And it's part of why the that moment this time last week was... Um, mm. I just got into this really low point because I had started researching Greta as thinking that it would be a remedy to everything I've been reading about Me Too, which is what we'll talk about next. And it ended up being just more desperate because I thought, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And, yeah, I think that sometimes she can be really empowering and uplifting, but also she does make you panic, which is exactly what we need to do because we've got to incite some action in individuals, but Mm. as well, I mean, this is the huge one, is on a government scale and on a business scale and get those taxes and just yeah definitely otherwise it won't work literally it won't no one's gonna no one's gonna make those changes on their own um and look at the plastic bag tax i mean no one was gonna stop using plastic bags until it was forced um but i wanted to read a quote about her just in reference to the negative response that she has. So she she responded, she said, when haters go after your looks and differences, it means they have nowhere left to go. And then you know you're winning. I have Asperger's and that means I'm sometimes a bit different from the norm. And given the right circumstances, being different is a superpower. Well, it definitely is. It really is. And she talks about it in her TEDx talk, how it makes the world be a black and white situation. Um, and that she can just see so clearly of what needs to happen and what doesn't. And the other thing she talks about in her TED Talk is selective mutism, um, which she describes as something where she only speaks when she thinks it's necessary. So, and I just love that, and I just think, wow, I mean, if you are someone who naturally is shy and look at what she's battling (laughs) for the sake of... But don't we, don't people, more people need to yeah, do that? Yeah, I <laughs> only speak when it's necessary. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's Including true. all of the politicians. <laughs> that is very true. Um, but I really like the way that she talks about those aspects of her identity and brings a perspective on them where you think, yeah, absolutely, because this is exactly who makes you who you are. And I think so often there's a negative um atmosphere that can go around to those things and I think she's breaking through that as well as hopefully inspiring people to change some of their habits and governments to finally listen 
The second figure that we're going to talk about is that after the Me Too movement began two years ago, in its first year, there were 19 million tweets with the hashtag Me Too, which means that it was 55,000 per day. Whoa. And I just looked up hashtag Me Too on Twitter just now, mm. and it says 660 posts, I think in the last hour. Wow. And obviously that's now slightly different, it's a, you know, not slightly different, very different context because if there is a media article or a relation or a video or something that is referencing Me Too as a movement rather than those personal stories which were shared in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, it's a different context but it still shows how much momentum that has. And yeah, it's just, um, I think... Social media is a double-edged sword, but of every single thing that's come out of social media, Me Too is the most positive force for change that I think anyone could ever have imagined. Mm. Why now? I think it got to a tipping point where this dynamic between fear and money and power, it was like it got a, like a crack between it because I think that that's what holds people silent mm -hmm. and and reputation these, actually as well yeah and I think it got to a point where they could get one crack and then the whole thing like mm. exploded mm. and I think that Rose McGowan is a huge figure in allowing that to break because what I didn't appreciate until I listened to a podcast with her um on ways to change the world was that she was the one who was speaking to Ronan Farrow who was the journalist who wrote his story for the New Yorker mm -hmm. the journalist who wrote the story in the New York Times were Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey and mm -hmm. they have just released this book she said mm -hmm. um which is all about the investigative journalism that went on to for them to be able to break that story. Absolutely fascinating. The one the episode they did on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I think I listened yeah, to I it listened twice, to actually. It was so good. Yeah. What were the, the main takeaways from that interview for you? It was just fascinating, the whole process, really. Um, you don't often think about what goes in behind a story that's what a thousand words or a thousand two hundred words you just see the, the article in the magazine and you think oh wow okay and then it blows up and you just don't really have a grasp of actually the life-threatening status that probably went into that yeah. um not only that but I hadn't really realised the involvement that Gloria Allred and Lisa Bloom had in trying to cover up these stories coming out and these are two you know, self-proclaimed feminist lawyers, uh, mother and daughter, uh, and Lisa Bloom was actually... that. When I heard that, it felt like a knife going into yeah. my chest. Yeah. But but it's true. I mean, didn't Jamila Jamil um, coin the term... Um, about Double the, agents of the patriarchy. Yeah, about the Kardashians. Um, and I'm not yeah. saying that the Kardashians are the same as Lisa Bloom, but there are many, many women that are complicit with all of this mm. um a lot of them feel threatened themselves in terms of power and reputation and that's mm. why they choose to but take i think there's, there's people down. being complicit and there's people being actively i know and she was trying active. yeah that's what i can't understand yeah it was awful
Well, she basically said that she was going to use all the knowledge that she had had yes. of defending people yeah. against them to try and yeah. help Harvey Weinstein. And there are letters, there are like pages and pages. <gasps> and so I haven't, so yeah, I, I basically started reading the preface and um, broke down. Mm. Um, I haven't picked up that book since. And I think that the whole thing just got too much for me. It was too many layers and something that I found very difficult to watch, but would recommend to everybody. It's kind of, it's a similar experience. This is also a weird comparison. When I went to Auschwitz for the first time I had mm. recently read started reading a book which is called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and again I haven't finished that book because I read the first 50 pages before I went in at eight o'clock in the morning we then were the first people there and the I had these words and these images of what I had been reading about very soon very just a few minutes ago when I was going round, and the whole thing just got completely overwhelming so, but then equally, I wouldn't ever say that you shouldn't go to Auschwitz because it's something, it's like man's in, inhumanity to man. You need to recognise that this is what has happened, which is why I think that it's very important that people educate themselves on things like the Harvey Weinstein scandal. And if you are someone who has not really delved into it, but are curious to know more and feel like you should see where the stories come from, definitely watch this documentary which is called Untouchable um produced by the BBC and you've read you've watched it as well right yeah harrowing um, harrowing really harrowing but just like so powerful because of all the interviews with these women and all of the stories and how they match up and how he would say oh my neck is sore and then ask them for a massage and then he completely corner them mm. and and I think that my the most important message that that communicated which I really hope begins to break out is that we have fight and flight we've all heard of that there's a third one and it's freeze mm -hmm. and that is what happens to so many people when you are in that situation mm -hmm. and if alcohol is involved as well I think that that becomes even worse and then the shame becomes even worse as well because then you think you it's blame your yourself. Yeah. And then you also go into this cycle of, well, no one's going to believe me. And was it that bad? And, yeah. and, 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 and. And did I and ask I for that, it? And was I leading them on? And, and what maybe was I wearing? Yeah. And honestly, all the cliches yeah. you get caught no, in your head. No, it's true. It's true. I, I, I haven't experienced sexual assault myself but I have definitely had various forms of harassment throughout my life probably what dating back to age 14 and in every single instance honestly my initial reaction is oh but I shouldn't have done xyz but I shouldn't have done xyz and, oh I was drinking and oh yeah blah 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 and in that what I think was hard to watch in that documentary was hearing those women say that too and I just mm -hmm. thought oh my god mm -hmm. that is what keeps people silent for so long yeah because you get into a shame storm as Brené Brown would say and what I have experienced in the last month I guess it's been a while since we've recorded um as someone who has experienced sexual assault and by on multiple occasions 
and by somebody when I was 17 who has since been convicted of sexual assault mm. by another girl. Um, when that article came out, I felt like my experience had been validated mm -hmm. because I felt like I was reading about myself. Mm -hmm. And so I relate to these women's interviews in a way where I could see how they could all connect with each other because every story matched up with each other. But what I found so upsetting last week when I was looking at this was that the huge difference is that the person who I was involved with, who I've since spoken to very recently and received the most heartfelt apology I have ever witnessed in my life. Um, and the huge difference is that he pleaded guilty. So, and that's what upsets me more than anything, is that Harvey Weinstein has assaulted, I mean, close to 90, eight, between 80, 90, you could get up to 100 women. And he has pleaded not guilty to every single one. Mm -hmm. He says that every single occasion was consensual. And that's what just makes me shake. <laughs> um and why I didn't know whether we were going to be able to talk about this or not. But I hope that the people listening can gain something from what we've shared. Um, and if you are ever in that situation, I think my advice would be, or if you have been in that situation, my advice would be to find a way to stop blaming yourself if that's the default that you found yourself trapped in. And the way that I have felt like I've broken out of that was actually picking up the phone to that person, which was the most terrifying thing I've ever done. But as soon as I got that apology, which I didn't know whether I was going to get, the blame shifts off me. What would you recommend if someone couldn't um, pick up the phone for whatever reason? Maybe that person isn't alive anymore. I think, Maybe that, that's just yeah. not appropriate and it would be even more traumatic. And I definitely wouldn't recommend that to every single person. Like every right. single situation is, is unique. But for me, that was the way that I've found release. Um, I think the first thing is it's it's release it's not even it doesn't even have to be with that one specific person it just has to be somebody just saying it out loud and telling what happened to you mm. is the first step to feeling better about it because if you keep it inside you and you keep it going round and round and round in your head it will just get worse and worse and worse and I think that silence is completely corrosive and that is why me too has been life-changing. The third figure that we're going to talk about is the sculpture Venus de Milo, which is in... On my request. Yes, um, because Georgia <laughs> texted me. She's like, can we please do another piece of art? <laughs> I love it when you go to now any gallery or museum and you always send me a message and you're like, oh, I know all of these different things. <laughs> I know, it's so mad. I do. It's so good. I'm so happy. Because that's why I love talking to people about art because... For me, it's something that can be incredibly elite because unless you went to mm. a certain school um, quite often or you went to, you like chose it as your university subject or you were able to choose a module and not every university can do that, mm. then you don't have a sort of understanding of different movements and how it works and how many different not factors play in it. And what I love about history of art is that it brings together philosophy and theology and history and politics and mm -hmm. the actual art itself literature. and literature and just there's yeah. so many yeah. factors that play in every single creation 
And unpicking that and the stories is what just makes it so much more vibrant and interesting. And so when mm-hmm. you can learn about it, going to a gallery is just definitely, it's just not, it's something that's a joy. You know, it's a privilege, a pleasure for me anyway. <laughs> um, when you just know a bit more about it. Okay, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Why are there no arms? <laughs> <laughs> there are no arms because... Well, so the the sculpture was found in pieces in 1820 on the island of Milos. I think that's how you pronounce it in Greece. Oh, fuck! Which is imagine finding. I know, um, which, which is why it's north of Crete, and um, so it's possible that the the arms were never found, or maybe they could have got lost, or yeah, or just it's like wear and tear. They're just because. It's like one of the most delicate parts of the sculpture because it's a uh, an appendage. Is that the right word? It's mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so why noses quite often get knocked off or heads. Yep. <laughs> um, noses, heads, and yeah. arms. Let's all be grateful we don't lose them on the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, but I think the arms thing is interesting because I always feel that with some of the most beautiful. Greek sculptures what makes them particularly beautiful is are the imperfections because Mm. I and I remember I was so fascinated by this when I was at school and I first started looking at art um and having my sketchbooks um and writing about it that I felt like your brain finished the sculpture for you when you look at it so yeah that's what I think is so engaging about it. And that's also why I just love unfinished paintings because it can show you how the painter or the person drawing it was working. It's like the sort of skeleton. But then also sometimes you don't even notice it and it just feels so much more alive because it engages your brain in a different way. Anyway, that's my theory. Mm. Um, Mm. But this sculpture was from dated to 130 to 100 BC, which is very old. Ancient Greek. Ancient Greek, but it puts it in the, I hope I'm getting this right, Hellenistic period. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, that is right. Um, so that was the kind of third stage, I guess. Art history quite likes to label things with big, complicated, long words that nobody can understand unless you've actually studied it, which also really annoys me. Mm-hmm. Um, so first came the Archaic period, that was 800 to 500 BC. Then was the Classical, which was 500 BC to about 3rd century BC. And then the Hellenistic, 3rd century to 1st century BC. Um, and it's just like different styles of sculpture. So Hellenistic is the most realistic. Um, okay. And Archaic was very, um, more like Egyptian sculptures. Like more like that style, mm-hmm. very straight up and down. And then... A huge change that made the kind of transition between the archaic and the classical was this pose called contraposto, another mm-hmm. um, snobby. Yeah, I discovered art that word. Term. <laughs> um, so that is essentially the sculptor has put the model and then sculpted their person in a way that is considered the most lifelike because it gives this S shape to the spine, and the hips tilt, and then the shoulders tilt the other way. And it gives this kind of dynamic oh, okay. feeling. Um, and that's what you see in the Venus de Milo. Um, it's mm. a very good example of it. And a lot of sculptures. Yeah. Because they look... Yeah. She also has abs. Yeah, she does. 
I know. You don't often see that in sculptures of females. No, you don't. And but I just love that she's. You can see how much of a real figure. Like there's this bold. She takes up her space, you know? There's nobody who's shrinking her. Um, and right. I think that too often that's what we don't see in modern images of women. I mean, it's getting better, but I still feel like that shrinking happens too I often. Know, that's true. Um, and it doesn't in this sculpture. Um, but the other thing that I discovered that I didn't know before looking this up was that really, because it was found in Greece, it should be the Aphrodite Milo because that was the Greek name for the goddess of love and beauty Um, but there are also other theories so it could be Amphrodite who was a sea goddess that was worshipped a lot on the island or it could be Victory Um, but they'll never really know but I think that happens a lot with Venus because of what she represents and being the goddess of beauty that a lot of sculptures Mm. that may or may not have actually been intended to represent Venus are called that and then the name gets set in stone i think a lot of things are attributed to venus that aren't necessarily yeah intended to be Mm. venus but people just associate Mm. them with her isn't don't you find it fascinating that human beings for hundreds of years had this whole other world of gods and beliefs that they worshipped and now it's almost just forgotten it's just seen as pieces of art Mm -hmm. And this is what I think going into the future when we have so much automation and climate change, <laughs> um, humans have a, a layer of spirituality that no robot can really take f- from us. And that's why we have different beliefs and different traditions and different rituals and different gods. It's fascinating <laughs> to think about such it is. a, it's really, such a really complex me all the network. Time so complex but it yeah. still um has so much hold, so simple but it still time. has so much hold so over effective. people because yeah. we're still i mean as i was talking about in the introduction yeah, we're massively. still talking about these stories and why and these heroes and these heroines and gods and goddesses yeah. and and it's that's what you know it has this very ancient primal like sacred element to it that you can't really shake really. off um, and I think that's what's so interesting about that whole, um, what would you call, is it a pantheon of gods, isn't it? It's so interesting that you've said that because that's um, in the book that I'm reading at the moment by Nikita Gill, the poet, The Great Goddesses. So she has these moral interludes and they break up the poems about all the goddesses. And in the first one, she's talking about when, what happens to a god when no one ever worships them anymore. Like, are they still Mm. powerful or are they not? And do they just sort of become normal people? Because they're immortal, so they're still alive. (laughs) And then they're, but they're not Mm. on Olympus anymore. And what I love that she does in this book, she imagines the gods and goddesses walking around in today's world and what they look like. And so Zeus, I just, I can't wait to show you this book. You're going to love it. Zeus becomes the Harvey Weinstein. And he... Of and course. is of has course. all these women knocking at his door and the silence breaks and it's just so beautifully written and also quite funny sometimes and it just sort of it just gives you new perspectives on things but I'd actually I would love to read a poem about Aphrodite um to finish this episode yes. written by Nikita Gill 
Um, so this is called The Goddess of Love, Aphrodite. And then there's a short story and she goes on and she's a founder of a dating app, which I love. <laughs> but I'm going to read good. the poem. So it says, She is supposed to be love, the perfection of it, the embodiment of it, the splendour of it. Mortals and gods alike look at her and think how marvellous it must be to be the goddess of love. Aphrodite, the goddess of breathless romances, of honeyed breaths, of feverishly promised forevers. They are too blind to see how often love is smoke and mirrors, used to ensnare like a hunter does a snag. Stag. Aphrodite, the goddess of unrequited ruins, of lifetimes of unhappiness, of forgotten fallen kingdoms. What good is it to be the goddess of love when you cannot, cannot be the goddess of kindness and pure intentions too? Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Figure Podcast. As usual, you can find us on Instagram at Figure Podcast and on Twitter at Figure Podcast. Please rate, review and subscribe because it helps other people find the podcast. And if you'd like to leave a review, then you're more than welcome. We are running the half marathon in two weeks. And less than two please weeks. Please pray for us because I don't know how we're going to do it. Um, but our next... Or send us a donation, yeah, please. Our next recording will be after that half marathon. So we will reflect and give you yeah. all the tips. <laughs> yeah. And I will be a new age. I'm going to be 24. And I am so excited to start a new year. And with all of my favourite people. And... I just there's something about this time of year it's like the changing seasons and then you're kind of looking towards Christmas and you're looking towards the next year it just feels like there's a lot of new beginnings and kind of a falling away of other things and I feel very relieved and excited of what's to come <laughs>